Good morning. Thank you, music team. That is just fabulous. That, this is so cool. I thought that was a xylophone or whatever you call that. Is that what it is? I had no idea you could do that. <laughs> Learned something new today. That is amazing. Um, my name is Vanita Jones, and I'm part of the teaching team here with Christ Chapel Women in the Word. I also want to give a shout out to the uh, West Campus women, because they'll be joining us as well. Um, today we are going to be looking at Genesis 6. And as we have all week, I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have, getting to know Noah just a little bit more. You know, I can't think of a better thing to do this morning. As I got up, I was looking at the headlines over my, with my morning coffee, and it's just disturbing. I mean, there were, I could not find one good headline from diseases to wars to serial killers to every horrible thing I could think of was there. And I had a smile on my face because I knew I got to come here with you today and study God's Word. And thank goodness we have that. You know, Christ tells us in Matthew 18, 20, says that wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there with them. Well, I look out and I'm pretty sure we have the two or more part covered. And we're here studying His Word, so I think we're here in His name. And I think He's right here with us today. In fact, I'm positive of that. You know, Amy reminded us a few weeks ago just how foundational these first 11 chapters of Genesis really are to us as Christians as we look out at this world and try to take in what's going on around us. It becomes our foundation, and I hope that you're seeing that as you study these with us. This week we embarked on a journey with one of the greats, with Noah. And you know, for me... There's so much more to Noah than what I've seen on those cartoonish little pictures we see in the Sunday school or, or in the nurseries in our, in our baby's room on the walls. It's, there's so much more. In fact, we're going to study Noah for several weeks. And you're going to know so much about Noah that by mid-November, I dare you, I bet you're going to know more than, about Noah than you do about Ebola. <laughs> and let me just tell you, that's a lot of information right now. That's 24-7. 24-7, and you're going to know more than that, I guarantee you. But I hope that you too saw that there's more to Noah than just this little, cute little cherub guy on, standing on a ship with a few animals around him. You know, as a kid, I, um, I was very visual. I'm very visual now, and that's how I learn everything, visual. My mother would have added to that very hyper as well. And I've always said that if there would have been medication back then for that, I would have been so medicated, I could have been a lab rat at Alcon. Because she would have used it every day. But in our home, on the coffee table, we had a big family Bible. You know, the great big one that we opened up and we would record the births and the deaths and the marriages. But rarely we opened it for anything else, except Vanita. I would go in there and it was the only time I could get still for hours. I wasn't reading it. Don't get me wrong. I was looking at the pictures. Because remember, I'm visual, and those pictures were so detailed. And I would just linger over every little inch of those pictures and take it in. So because of that, whenever I start to hear a Bible story, the picture that I had ingrained in my brain from that Bible is what pops into my head instantly. Well, for me, I'll tell you what Noah is. He's a sturdy man. He's on the deck of a wooden ship, on this wooden deck, and he's standing there like this with a staff. And he has long white hair. Remember, he's really old and a big beard. And he has a few animals around him. And he's standing in the wind is blowing his hair back behind him because he's in a storm. That's Noah. 
But that's really all I kind of knew about Noah. Sturdy, had some animals with him, built an ark. But there was so much to Noah that I hadn't learned. You know, I read something while I was studying about Noah, and it was entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. I thought, well, this sounds pretty interesting. I better read this since I'm teaching him. It's, I'm going to read a few, just a few. There were several points, but a few that I think this guy, his name's Robert Fulgham. I'm pretty sure he meant it to make him tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's a lot of thought-provoking things in there as well. Like the first one said, don't miss the boat. That's good advice, <laughs> especially for those guys back then. And I've almost missed a boat, so I totally understand that. The second one I thought was good was plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. That's good advice. Another one, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really important. <laughs> you got to get busy. This one I've used for my kids before. It's for safety's sake, travel in pairs. That's really good advice, very sound advice. And this next one for me was important because I'm not the fastest person on earth. It said speed isn't always an advantage. The snails are on board with the cheetahs. It's true. They all made it on, so they're okay. And lastly, I thought a good one was, remember that the ark was built by amateurs, but the Titanic by professionals. <laughs> That's good information, don't you think? This guy was onto something. But you know, there were 13 points in all. Those are the ones I thought were the best. But I think we could add to that. Something that we could learn from Noah and Noah's ark was that God's definition of obedience includes no compromise. And in the words of my daddy, none, nada, zilch. Not at all. You know, I read a quote. I hope you saw that. Noah exemplified that. He kind of had that no compromise obedience thing down. He went against all majority of the time and he obeyed every word of God's command. I read a quote about majority and it said this. It said, majority means nothing. Because during the flood, only one man knew enough to get out of the rain. That was Noah, and we get to study Noah. And because of his unwavering obedience to God's word, he was able to not only save himself, he was able to save his family as well. Because he didn't pick and choose what part of God's word he was going to follow. He followed it all without compromise. So today we're going to start out reading the first eight verses. I want you to open your Bibles up to Genesis 6. And follow along as I read 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continuously. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." See, as chapter 6 opens up, we see that things just hadn't gotten much better since Adam and Eve were tossed out of the garden. In fact, things had gotten a little bit worse. In fact, a lot worse. And, and we see in these first few verses that, that what it may have been was compromise. And what I don't want us to do is get bogged down in these first four verses 
and, and fail to miss the big, deep spiritual lessons that God wants us to learn. We're going to touch on what these weird verses, just face it, they're just kind of weird. I don't, what are they talking about here? The sons of God and the daughters of man. But we're not going to get bogged down in it today. So this is what I found out about it. You know, um, I, I not only heard problems about that, but I had people say to me, how did God put all those animals on there? I've had people say, really? Do you think he could have been on an ark that long? And how did he know how much food to take? And how did those animals get there? And really? Do you think that's really even true? Maybe that's just a story God made up to teach us some lessons. I've even heard that. So there's lots of controversy following this, this Noah's ark in, the, in Genesis. Enough that we don't need to add to it. So when we look at these sons of God and these, and these daughters of men, there were several ideas. And I read and I read, and there were some, I'm serious, I felt like I should have tinfoil on my head, that were crazy sounding, and some seemed very logical, to the point I felt like I needed to speak with the leadership of our church, and they helped me, kind of guided me to some different ideas, and an idea that they have accepted. Now, one idea, and this is not the one they accept, is that the sons of God are fallen angels, and they have cohabited with women. And I'm, I know some of you have probably read that. I, I don't know. You know, I, that's not the one I am going with. And one suggests that the sons of God are godly men from the line of Seth. And that other, and the daughters of, of man are Canaanites. Remember, the Canaanites were the, um, those that, they worshipped many gods. Not the Yahweh God. Now, the idea that our leadership has accepted is the one that says that the sons of God are the followers of God. They're the believers of the time. And the daughters of men are referred to those unbelievers, the ones that followed many gods or a different god other than the Yahweh God. But no matter what theory you decide to cling on to, I don't think that's the important part here. I think we can all agree on one point. God wanted us to know that the world had become this dark, miserable, violent, and sin-filled place. It was despicable. And I think that's what's mostly important to us, that he wanted us to know. And basically, I think he wanted us to know that what started that sin was compromise. And it was compromise that, that came about in the area of marriage. God had warned people about making treaties with, with those outside, the unbelievers. And marriage is in one of those treaties. Look at Exodus 34, 14, 15, and 16 on your verse sheet. It says, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. And, and Paul addresses this very thing in the New Testament, in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? See, God was warning about what happens when those that married, married in with, with those that worshipped other gods. It was a compromise. It's a compromise, just like any other compromise you make to God's word. And eventually what happens is there'll be this slow fade because you will be accepting other ideas and listening to other ideas that become part of your daily life. And, and pretty soon right and wrong becomes kind of this gray area and you allow other ideas to seep in too that kind of fit into your purposes and you can rationalize that. And that result for them was a watering down of God's people 
And it caused them to be less effective in God's kingdom. Now we have to deal with the uh, Nephilim in verse 4. What a conundrum that is. What is that? I did the same thing. I read and read and read in the Nephilim. They, they show up again later in the Old Testament. So, so what I found out is that we don't think they're actually a race of people. Because if they, they show up again in numbers later on, they, would have, they wouldn't have if they're a race of people because everything was wiped out except for Noah and his family. What the common belief is that these were a, not only men of great stature, which I think they were, they were tall, big, fierce people. I think they were also very renowned, maybe infamous warriors that went about just causing carnage everywhere they went. And I think they, they just, they were, everyone was fearful of them. Look at Numbers 13, 32 through 33. This is where we see them show up again in the, in the Old Testament. Moses has sent spies out into Canaan. He's, they're supposed to check out what's going on in the land. They're going to eventually try to take over. And listen to what they report back to Caleb and Moses. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to, the oursel- we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. See, many believe that they were not a race. They were just men of great stature. And that they had gone around causing carnage everywhere, far and wide. And people were terrified of them. But regardless of who these bad dudes were, I think we can agree on the one thing that God wants us to know. Noah's world had become a dark, violent, sin-filled world. So much so, it said it grieved his heavenly father in his heart, and he regretted, and God regretted creating man. Oh, did that hurt your heart? That was so hard for me to read, and I got hung up there. It was easy to stop there and go, oh, Noah's Ark? I thought this was going to be this sweet, sweet little story of this man with animals standing around him on this ship. This is hard to read. You know, I read a a quote later that kind of helped me out. It's by Matthew Henry, and I, I love this guy. He says, God may have regretted creating man, but God never regretted redeeming man. And that was so helpful to me. He has never regretted redeeming man. You know, while I think it's worthwhile to inquire about the civilization of the time that's going to perish... God makes it obvious as he only spends a small amount of time on those that are going to die in this flood. He spends these first few verses, but then he spends a lot of time on those that are going to survive the flood. See, God spends these four verses telling us how wicked the world is, but he is going to spend three and a half chapters telling us about the ones he's going to save and deliver during this flood. It tells me, in my little mind, that God felt like it was important for us to know what Noah was up against, that this world was wicked. I thought it was, he thinks it's important for me to know that it was compromise that caused that sin to, to snowball like it did. But I think it was even more important to God that I see Noah's obedience and that he had an unwavering obedience without compromise and it kept him alive during the flood. You know, Noah and his little family lived in this dark and violent world. And I kind of think they might have been the only ones, obviously, because it says they were, that they were the only ones that believed. And, 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 God, and I don't think they just believed God's word. I think they lived it out. I think others could have seen that. 
I believe that Noah found favor in God's eyes because he was unwilling to compromise. And we're going to see that he doesn't compromise at all. None, not a zitch. Not only is he uncompromising in this world that he's up against, but he's also uncompromising within his obedience, which I thought was really interesting. You know, we can compromise God's word, compromise God's word and be outside of his will, and it's very obvious. It's obvious many times to others, and it's obvious to us when we're doing it. But you know there's that time when you said yes and you're following God's word and you'll be obedient, obedient to what he's called you to do. Do you know you can still be disobedient within your obedience? I didn't see that. God showed that to me this week. It's true. It seems that Noah was obedient within his obedience. I know that sounds odd. Stick with me here. Have you ever said yes to God? Yeah, I'm going to do this. And God wants you to take something from point A to point B. And then you get in the middle of there and it's been several years or weeks or years, months, whatever it is. And you're thinking, well, you know, this could go a little faster or a little easier if I just tweaked his word just a little bit. You know, it sounds more logical to do it this way. Have you ever done that? Well, just imagine, if you will, if Noah had done that. I think there could have been this little conversation between Noah and God that sounded something like this. Where is that ark that I have commanded thee to build, Noah? Noah replies, Verily, I have three carpenters off ill. The gopher wood is on back order, and it's been on back order for nigh of 12 months. What am I to do, O Lord? God says, I want that ark finished even after seven days and seven nights. And Noah replied, It will be so. But it was not so. Then the Lord said to Noah, What seemeth to be the trouble this time, Noah? And he replies, well, my subcontractor has gone bankrupt. And the pitch you commanded me to put on the outside of the ark, well, it hasn't arrived. And all the plumbers have gone on strike. And the Lord grew angry. And he said, and what about those animals, the male and the female of every sort that I've called you to, to bring onto that ship to save their seed? Well, they've been delivered to the wrong address, Lord. And we're hoping that they'll be here by Friday, but I just don't know for sure. And then the Lord says, well, how about those unicorns? And, and how about the fowls of the air? And Noah says, oh, Lord, you know that unicorns are a discontinued line. We can't get those for love nor money. <laughs> and, and, and the fowls of the air, well, they're only sold in half dozens. Lord, you've got to know how hard this is for me. And the Lord, in all his wisdom, looked at Noah, and he would have said, Noah, my son, I knowest. And now you know why I've caused a flood to descend on this earth. You know, all joking aside, that little conversation that didn't really happen, thank goodness, could have been me doing anything that God's called me to do. Like, oh, this is hard. I'm going to do it a different way. Or I might have. If I couldn't have found gopher wood, I probably would have used oak and the thing would have sunk. I don't know. But he did exactly what God asked him to do. And I'm not sure about you, but I've done it before. You know, one of Satan's most effective tools is compromise. Satan desires nothing more than to have us compromise our obedience to God's word. You know, one of the definitions for compromise is the blending of two qualities into one thing. Compromising our obedience to God's word means that we're blending things from God to things with this world. And what happens is we become watered down. And we're less effective. We become lukewarm. We're no longer that salt and light that God has called us to be. Look at your verse sheet at Revelations 3.16. And this is what it says about lukewarm. 
So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He has, we can't, we're, it ain't effective for him. He doesn't need us at that point. Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And verse 16 of Matthew 5, Jesus tells this. He says, let your light shine before others so that we may, they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. See, when we begin to mix the truths from God's word into the so-called truths of the world that change like every 30 seconds or so, what happens is the world becomes more enticing to us. We have this bigger gray area. Things aren't quite so black and white to us anymore. And slowly but surely, we start to abandon our devotion to the Lord, sometimes in just little ways, but then they can lead to big ways. And then that's when we begin to lose our effectiveness in the kingdom of God. The result is this spiritual death of sorts. It's, it's a broken relationship between us and our creator God. And if history has shown us anything in these last few chapters of Genesis, it eventually is going to cause physical death as well. We saw that with Cain and Abel. And that's what we're about to see with the coming of the, big flood, the great flood. That's what Genesis 6 is it opening up to. If this was a stage and we were talking about setting the stage, it's the world. And the world is despicable at that point. And God has responded to his wickedness, this wickedness with grief in his heart. And he starts to spell out impending judgment for the world. And then we're introduced to, inner stage left, Noah who found favor in God's eyes. Because when God looked out over this world filled with compromise, guess what? He didn't see any in Noah. None, nada, zilch. And that's why he could use Noah. Let's continue on by reading verses 9 through 13, if you'll follow along with me. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so we read Noah found favor in God's eyes. How do we find favor in God's eyes? Well, it's right there in verse 9 and 10. Spelled out to us in black and white. It says that Noah was a righteous man, he was blameless in his generation, he walked with God, and he was fruitful and he multiplied. That's how he found favor in God's eyes. Did you notice that anywhere in 9 and 10 it didn't say that Noah was sinless or blameless or, or perfect? I mean, he was blameless, he was, not, perf- he was perf- not perfect. There's only been one sinless, perfect man on the face of the earth, and that's Christ Jesus. Not Noah. But he was still found righteous, blameless, and he walked with God, and he was fruitful, and he multiplied. And it says that he honored God, and he desired to follow God's commands. See, these tell us that he was a man who was found righteous and blameless. He was found righteous and blameless because of the grace of God. And his outpouring of that was that he honored God and he desired to follow God's commands. And then it says that even though we fall short of perfection, because of God's grace through Jesus Christ, we also are found righteous and blameless when put up against a dark world. And God called Noah blameless, not because he was sinless, 
because of God's grace. And that's what God saw when he looked at Noah. He saw God's heart, and he saw that he had a desire to honor him and to follow his commands. And so Noah became this little ray of light in this really dark world. And then it said he walked with God. You know, we hear about other greats in the Bible that walked with God. We learned last week that Enoch walked with God. Do you know that walking with God is not reserved for just a select few of Bible greats? God desires to walk with all of us. All of us. Look at Micah 6, 8 on your verse sheet. It says, He has told you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, us honoring God and being found righteous and blameless before God is because of God's grace. But we make a choice to walk with God. And that's our choice. God desires to walk with us. But what does that mean exactly? Is that just kind of churchy words? What does it mean to walk with God? You know, just, just for a minute, let's think about this. What happens when we're walking with someone? Let's say, for instance, you're on a walk with your spouse or a close friend. And you're out walking around and you, you stay close together. You talk some. Sometimes you don't talk. Sometimes you're just listening. Sometimes neither one of you are talking. Sometimes you laugh. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you look out and notice all the beauty around and you share that with them. And sometimes you look out and you see some really bad stuff and you share that with them. So basically you're sharing your heart with them. And then you spend more and more time focused on them. And when you do spend that time focused on them, you want to spend more time focused on them. And the more time you spend focused on them, the more you feel safe and secure to be open and transparent with them. See, that's how it is when we walk with God. He becomes our heart's desire when we do that. Sometimes we talk to him. Sometimes we listen. Sometimes we don't say anything, and we may not hear anything from him, but we know he's walking right there with us. Sometimes we look out at the world and see all the horrible headlines, and we share that with him. And sometimes we look out and we see those beautiful flowers blooming and all the pansies being planted, and we share that with him. That's how we walk with God. We, we want to know him then. We want to hear his voice. We want to share our hearts with him. And then he becomes our desire. He becomes our focus. And then walking with God comes, becomes more than just meeting with him on Sunday morning or coming to Bible study on Thursday morning. It becomes more than that. You know, A.W. Tozer says this, that the goal of every Christian should be to live in a state of unbroken worship. See, living in a state of unbroken worship, it's not only the definition of what it means to walk with God to me, but living in a state of unbroken worship is only possible if we're walking with God. So it's kind of a circle. You know, in verse 10 we learn then that Noah was fruitful and he multiplied. We see he had three sons. He was carrying out a command that, he, that God had given back to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1, 28a. And God blessed them, he said, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He was simply increasing God's kingdom and doing what he had been commanded to do. It's amazing that we learn so much about this man in just two short little verses. And I believe that what we've learned about Noah made him stand out like a sore thumb in this world of darkness. I'm pretty positive his life was in stark contrast to the rest of the world, and it's because he was unwilling to compromise. And when we walk with God day in and day out, the world can't help but recognize 
that we've spent time with our Father God. Because it should be written all over our face. See, despite any imperfections in us, when we spend time with God, we're able to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Look at your verse sheet in Galatians 5, through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is what others are going to see when you've spent time with God. They're going to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there are no laws. I mean, what? On the flip side, when we aren't walking with God and we become willing to compromise his word and we're not focusing on God and we begin to focus on the world and, and our own flesh, Galatians tells us exactly what happens then. Look at five, uh, Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I think Galatians 5, 4, or these four verses in, in Galatians 5 are exactly what we're looking at when we look at pre-flood world. We see those that have compromised and we see all of these horrible things and we see Noah and his little family who were uncompromising and we see the fruits of the Spirit. Imagine, if you will, you know, he was up against a lot. Imagine, if you will, if, if all the population of the world lived within the city limits of Dallas-Fort Worth. There was nothing outside the city limits. Every single person in the world lived in this area. And you, had, you and your little family, your immediate family, for me that would be six people, who I don't know what it is for yours, were the only believers at all. You didn't have your church family, you didn't have your church small group, you didn't have any fun and safe and fun for the family radio station to listen to. Nothing. It's just you and your little family trying to walk with God. That's where Noah was. But Noah shows us that with uncompromising obedience, we're able to honor God and be seen blameless in the sinful world. And then Noah's given some information about what's going to happen to this world. Pretty shocking information. And then he's also going to be given instructions on how to build this ark, which I'm sure was very foreign to him at the time. And they're going to be very specific instructions. Let's read on verse 14 through 22. It says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 30 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wives, your wife, and your sons' wives. And of every living thing of all flesh, you will bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, and of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you, come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, I don't know if you thought this was interesting or not. I thought it was interesting that God didn't just start right out saying, okay, I'm going to bring this flood on the earth. Do you notice he didn't do that? He just started right in and told him to get some gopher wood and start building this ark. 
And I, I thought that was very interesting because at this point, there had been no rain, apparently, from what I've read. And the earth was kind of like a big terrarium, and it was kind of hydrated by mist and dew and, and, and some of these springs that bubbled up. But really, the thought of a rainstorm so bad that it could flood even the tip-tops of the mountains probably was very foreign to Noah. And you know, the first time I learned that little piece of information, which I didn't know for till maybe 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, when I heard that, Noah went from here on the list of obedience to, wow, up here, God's telling you to build something when there's never even been a flood or even a rainstorm on earth. And, and, and goodness, Noah's wife, for heaven's sakes, we've got to give her at least 30 seconds. <laughs> she doesn't even get named in here. Can you imagine if your husband said, there's going to be a rainstorm and I need to build this boat in the front yard. And for 120 years, he's building this boat. I wouldn't even let my husband work on a Jeep for three years in our backyard. I'm like, you've got to get rid of the Jeep. She let him build this boat in her front yard, and she stood by him. She didn't even, she didn't even know what an ark was. They didn't need a boat. They probably didn't even need a kayak. She went from this person, I don't know her name, to the most submissive, obedient wife I think I've ever read about in the Bible, and she doesn't even get her name in there. She has a special, she has a mansion in heaven. I can tell you that much, but... You know, in these verses, we learn these specific instructions. They are very specific about how to build this. And when we see not only Noah is not willing to compromise out in the world, we find out that his uncompromising obedience is going to carry over into the building of the ark because he follows every single command that God give, gave him. You know, I had you read that quote earlier about Matthew, from Matthew Henry. It said, God may have regretted creating man, but he never regretted redeeming man. I hope that is encouraging to you as well. To know that God never regretted redeeming us. He's never regretted that. You know, in your questions last week, I had you look up some uh, verses to compare about the instructions that were given to Noah and to Moses and to the rest of us as we looked for deliverance and for salvation. And I think the fact that God never regretted redeeming man becomes very evident to us when we look at all the detail he spent in, in delivering man. We see that in the detailed instructions he gave Noah to build the ark. And that ark was going to save his family and, and keep a remnant around. And then God gives Moses these in, just these detailed information, chapters after chapter of information about building the tabernacle. Because that's the very place that God was going to dwell. And finally, I think we see this evidence that God never regretted redeeming us. When we look at all the details spread throughout the entire Bible that points us straight to Christ. And the redemptive work that Christ did for us on the cross. You know, just like Noah found sanctuary in the ark, Moses and the Israelites found sanctuary in that tabernacle. And when we place our trust in the redemptive work of Christ that he did for us on the cross, we find sanctuary in our Lord Jesus Christ as well. See, storms are going to rage around us. But when we've placed our trust in Christ, like Noah's ark, Christ is our sanctuary. He is our deliverer. There are so many aspects of the building of the ark that point to Jesus. And, and I, I hope that you will look into this. I googled it. I dare you to do that. You will have weeks of stuff to read. It is fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Just put it in there. Google something like Jesus compared to Noah's ark and get ready. 
and just get your glasses on and, and a cup of tea because you're going to be busy for hours. But I, and I want you to do that. But I'm going to give you a few little, a couple things that blew my mind and I thought were really interesting. It's um, in verse 14, God tells Noah to cover the ark with pitch. See, today we call pitch tar. It's like what we seal our driveways with or put on our roofs to seal, to keep the water out. But the Hebrew word for pitch is kephar. I may be saying that wrong. But it's used 70 times in the Bible. And it's used 70 times in the Bible to mean atonement as it relates to a blood sacrifice. But there's only one exception to that where it's used to mean something else. And guess where it is? In Genesis 6, verse 14, when God tells Noah to cover and pitch inside and out. See, just as a pitch seals and covers the spaces between that gopher wood, the blood of Christ covers and seals us as well. Christ made atonement for our sins by the shedding of his blood. And Paul tells us that in Romans 5, 8 through 9. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then look at verse 16. God tells Noah to put a door in the side of the ark. He didn't say doors. He didn't say put eight doors on one side and there'll be lots of ways for people to get in if they decide to change their mind. He didn't. He said put a door in the side of the ark. There would only be one way into the ark for deliverance. In the same way, God our Father made it very simple for all of us. He provided us one way to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Look at John 10, 9a on your verse sheet. Jesus says, I am the door. He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I hope that you will continue on and read some other stuff. There was so much more, but those are the two that just were so exciting to me. I just wanted to share them and whet your appetite so you'd continue. You know, last week I also had you think about the fact that God didn't have Noah build an ark that could be navigated. And that blew me away. I'm sorry. I may be very simple, and I had never seen that. But that was fascinating to me. See, the ark that Noah was to build would not be able to be controlled by man. Even in the middle of this violent, scary storm, when Noah was very well could have tried to handle the situation on his own, There was going to be no way to navigate that ark. He would have to completely relinquish his control over to God. And you know, it's easy for me to do that when everything's easy and the seas are calm. But as soon as someone pulls or something pulls a rug out from underneath underneath me and the seas start to swell around me, I become the captain of my own ark. And, And history's shown for me that when I do that, I quickly become Gilligan and make a mess of things. Very quickly. I want to look at uh, Genesis 6.22 one more time. It says this about Noah. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's how God, he, Noah responded. God wasn't asking Noah to do some small little job either. In fact, it ended up taking Noah over 120 years to build this. It's a long time, ladies. And it was a huge boat. If you do the math, the cubits come out to 450 feet long. That's like one and a half football fields. 70 feet wide, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet high. That's like a four-story building. 
This thing was gigantic. And he was not only going to build it, he was going to fill it. And he was going to stock it with enough food to take care of all these animals. And he had no idea how long he was going to be on that thing. So he had to be listening to God in every little bit of it. You know, true, he truly is one of the greats in the Old Testament. He's not perfect, and we're going to find that out. He makes some mistakes down the road. And that's when we know he's not sinless and nor perfect. But he had a desire to walk with God. And because of his unwavering obedience, God was able to use him to save a remnant. And nowhere in anything we read today did it say that God had to keep reassuring him. There's 120 years. Don't you think after 60 years I might be going, oh man, seriously, this boat, is it ever going to float? Is there ever going to be enough water? I would have been questioning three months into it. He never had to be reinsured. And and don't you know there had to be some jokes about Noah floating around? Have you heard the one about Noah? How many old guys does it take to build an ark? I mean, there had to be all kinds of things going around this godless world. And he just kept moving forward. See, for all of us, we can glean just a little bit of information and, and knowledge about Noah's example and apply it to our own lives. He, he showed us that an uncompromising obedience to God's word makes us salt and light in this dark world. And it is absolutely possible to live in a sin-filled world without compromising God's commands. And we can look around today and we can say, yeah, it's easy for him. It was back in the day when he didn't have all the stuff we have. We have all these horrible diseases and all this terrible stuff and and da-da-da. And we can go on and on. But you know what? As bad as you can try to make it right now, it's still not as bad as it was back in Noah's day. And you know what? There were only eight believers. That's about as many people sitting in this row right here. That's it on the whole earth. And I guarantee you, we have more technology and more resources than Noah ever dreamed of having. So ladies, we have to decide right now to, to not compromise God's commands. Because we're all going to go through storms. Jesus tells us that in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you so that you and me may have peace. In this world you will have a tribulation, but have heart. I have overcome the world. We're going to have storms. We're going to have some little storms. My daddy would call those six-inch rains. That's where you have one raindrop every six inches. Those are the easy ones. Then you're going to have some of those torrential downpours where you feel like you are drowning and you are treading water. And those may last weeks, months. They could even last years. But we have got to obey his commands. He calls us to do that, whether we feel like it or not. Because courage may be optional. But Noah shows us that obedience without compromise is absolutely required. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just uh, thank you for your words. I thank you that um, you do give us commands, Father. I pray that you would give us each the desire to, to walk with you so that we can follow your commands without compromise. Lord, I pray that your word would not go out here, out of here, without touching someone's heart and taking things that we can apply to our lives. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.